as well. But uh, starting next Sunday, we will be back together in person. Now, what that means is we're actually going to be switching up the format a little bit compared to like what a normal Sunday would look like for us. So the format is going to be focused uh, a lot, really people-centered, people-focused, focused on connection and community and reflection and prayer. Why? Why this approach? Well, because up to this point, Quebec has still mandated uh, vaccine passports for churches, for all places of worship. Now, uh, there's lots of biblical and theological Uh, reasons why we as elders cannot justify doing that at this time. And if again, if you wanted to talk at some of those deeper complexity uh, levels with with us, John and I would be happy to do so. Uh, But what we're going to do in order to balance uh, both respecting and honoring our government in line with Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, um, balancing that with the fact that church is essential to the well-being, not only of us, those that belong to them, but also the overall mental, emotional, and spiritual health of our communities and our neighborhoods. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be emphasizing our identity as the church as community organizations and support groups. And so we're going to operate like that, uh, which when you look at what the church is, when the church is healthy, uh, it is a community. It is a support group. I know that so often in the West, we've turned it into a 90-minute thing on a Sunday. Uh, But really, a church is much more than that. And I think that it's important to emphasize that, especially in this season, because right now, according to our government, um, uh, support groups and community organizations and other nonprofits uh, can meet without passports with a maximum of 250 people. And so for us, what we've tried to do is understand out of like the 11 uh, crappy options that we have right now uh, for how do we move forward, uh, we're trying to choose the least Um, crappy of those options and make sure that we're prioritizing being together and trying to leverage, I think, some of the misclassification and misunderstanding of what the church is according to our government. Because you got to understand, for for Legault, when he thinks about the church, he thinks Sunday Mass. That's the only reference point for him and the church. Uh, But we know the church is much more than that and different than that. And so what we want to do is try to actually operate and move forward and function like a community when we're healthy and support one another. And so we're working on the details of what that's going to look like, how to do that safely um, and how to do that well. Because I think that one of the things that often we don't see, we see kind of the bigger public health risk and and factors. And, and that's a, a big piece of how to move forward and be safe and also protect our neighbors and love them. So that's one piece. But the pandemic kind of under the pandemic is the social isolation and the mental and emotional unwellness and the relational breakdown and uh, the depression and the addiction and the domestic issues that we're seeing. And John and I, as elders, as pastors, uh, we're looking at how to balance keeping people safe, but also helping people thrive and flourish in this season. And so that's what we're we're trying to balance. So pray for us as we continue to work on details with that. Um, good news is that many churches, I, I spoke to over a dozen pastors this week, um, many churches are going to be following suit with this kind of um, kind of format moving forward. And so not just like a normal call to worship, sing some songs, listen to some word and go home, but actually participating where we can uh, encourage more reflection and discussion and prayer and support one another um, and actually do that. So dozens of churches will be following suit with this to help 
our government understand uh, that the church is essential um, and that when we're functioning well and we are healthy, that we are actually a vital um, and of value to our communities. And so that's what we're gonna be doing uh, next week moving forward. So keep your eye open for details. If you have any questions, I know that it's a lot to kind of uh, hear at, one, at once. If you wanna talk through some of the details of that, please reach out to, to John and myself and we'd love to uh, chat and clarify some things with you. Uh, live stream will be made available. Uh, for all of us who are not yet ready. Um, and we're going to make sure that that's a priority for all of us so that all of us can stay connected uh, as much as possible in this kind of in-between season. Um, and we're going to be starting a new series next week. And we're going to take a break from Mark. And you'll see why in a second. I'm actually going to preach out of some of this. But we're going to start a series called Prayers in Acts. And what we're going to be doing is every time a prayer happens in the book of Acts, uh, we're going to be teaching out of it. And then we're going to practice it. And so that's going to give us a helpful format for practicing these things in community. So prayers of boldness, prayers for forgiveness, prayers of submission, prayers for miracles. And throughout, as you go through the book of Acts, there's lots of different prayers that are prayed um, over the course of the book. And we're going to be um, trying to lean into what those are and pray out of that. Okay, uh, so we're going to be doing that. The last thing is that also I've been talking closely with Pastor Jeff and Church 21 West Island and uh, about us maybe even um, combining forces and coming together over the next several weeks for that series and really being able to practice prayer together in community, um, not just for our own church, but for kind of the church, especially across the West Island. So uh, pray for us as we continue to work on details. Again, if you have any questions at all, uh, please reach out. We'd love to uh, chat about that with you. Um, before we jump in, before we jump in to preach, we didn't have anybody um, available to share a testimony or a story uh, this week. So I'm going to, I'm going to share. Um, last weekend, we as a family, we got to uh, go to Ontario, uh, which right now feels like the land of the free. It's very strange. Uh, churches are open, li limited capacity, but they're open and they're doing what the church is doing, which is amazing. So I got to go and preach at one of our partner churches in the uh, greater Toronto area. And uh, after I preached, finished. We're talking to some people, just kind of hanging out. And I was approached by an older man and he said, Hey, can I introduce you to two young guys that I've been discipling? I said, sure, absolutely. Let's do that. And, uh, I went and I met these two young guys, two brothers, um, both teenagers and, um, started a conversation with them. And what they ended up telling me was that actually it was two years ago that I preached a sermon at that same church that, uh, both of them gave their life to Christ. And I didn't know that until literally on Sunday when they told me, and they told me that it was specifically a sermon on, on quiet, on practicing silence and solitude and prayer. And uh, the story was, was very interesting because the older brother was just at home after the sermon, um, playing some music, hanging out in his bedroom. The younger brother came into his bedroom and said, hey, I think you should turn your music off and have some quiet time. And the younger brother was like, man, get out of my room. Like, I'm just listening to some music. And they sat there for a few minutes and, and immediately felt pretty convicted. Like, maybe I should. Maybe I should spend some quiet time and just be, be silent. Um, so he did. So he turned his music off and uh, just sat on his bed. And the Lord used that opportunity to break into his life and uh, convict him of his sin. And for the first time, he, he answered that call and uh, prayed and responded and gave his life to Christ. And for the last two years, they've been discipled in the context of the local church by an older faithful man who was just pouring into these two teenage boys. And so I just wanted to share that because I think sometimes, especially in seasons like this, where we really don't feel like anything is happening, or there's so much kind of frustration and um, discomfort with like, what, what should we be doing? What should we not? Like, how do we even navigate the complexity of this season? It's so important to be reminded that God is not just sitting passive, not doing anything. 
that our God is faithful, that Jesus is still building the church, that the same God who pursues and rescues sinners is still at work um, as our comforter, drawing near to us as we suffer, as we walk through grief and different things that we're going through. And for those of us who are walking through a different season of encouragement and trying to make sure that we're staying active and fruitful. So I thought that was a really helpful um, thing, especially considering sometimes we share the gospel with people, we share the gospel with neighbors, with friends, we pray for family members, co-workers, all of that. And we don't necessarily get to see sometimes the fruit and uh, the result. And that was just a great reminder of God's faithfulness. So uh, that was encouraging to me, especially as a preacher, because often, uh, especially like now, into a screen, you're like, is this doing anything? Um, so yeah, I was really thankful for that. And um, just another way for us to rejoice and be thankful for God being faithful always. Um, so let me pray. Let me pray and we'll jump into Mark, spend some time there before we um, get off and go and freeze in the cold together. Uh, Father, thank you that you are faithful. Thank you that uh, you give of yourself because of your love for us and that it's a gift that we receive, that our identity is in you and it's not worked for, but that it's worked from. And we're so thankful that we're accepted and fully known and fully loved by who you are. And that you're not a passive God, that you're very active in the small stuff, in the quiet still of our life, but also in the bigger picture. You truly are sovereign. You are a big God, much bigger than anything that, that we can even see. And so I just pray that uh, even this morning, as we continue to fight to stay connected, get around your word, we ask that you would apply it to our, our heart, to our mind, that our, our focus would really be laser um, just this laser clear on you and that if there's anything distracting us this morning, that you would just take that away so that we really could come and, and see you clearly and hear from your word. So we love you. We invite you into this time. And uh, yeah, we ask these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Um, all right. So Mark 11, uh, Tim did a great job last week um, getting us right into the beginning of Passion Week, the the, the beginning of Passover. And so we saw the triumphal entry um, happening last week in the text. And uh, what we want to see is right here, this is the ac actually the exact same time frame of these next few chapters that Mark is kind of slowing down the pace of the narrative, slowing down the pace of the gospel a little bit. And he's zooming in on just a couple days, but it's an action-packed couple days. So the triumphal entry happened on Sunday. And then what we're going to see today with Jesus's curse of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple, that happened the next day on Monday. But then Tuesday, we see him kind of finalizing the object lesson of the fig tree and it withering. And then him going into teaching his famous teachings in the Olivet Discourse on the Mount of Olives on Tuesday. And so we have Sunday to Tuesday, but we have a lot of things happening in those um, few days as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to head to the cross ultimately. Okay, so let's pick Pick up in uh, chapter 11, verse 12. So the next day, so this is now going on to Monday. Uh, the next day, when they went out from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. I love how real sometimes the Gospels are. It's just like Jesus was hungry. He needed to eat. Seeing in the distance, just off a little bit, a fig tree with leaves. So it was green. He went to find out if there was anything on it, any fruit. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. So he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. You're like, okay, interesting, harsh. 
They came to Jerusalem after this, and he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and the scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. They were amazed with Jesus. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. But early in the morning, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree withered. And so it's died. it has died now. From the roots up, it's decayed from the soil up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Weird response. We'll get back to that in a second. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, pointing at the temple mount, where the temple is, at this exact mountain right here, be lifted up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believed, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you for your wrongdoing. All right, there's a lot going on here, and we're going to hone in on just a couple things. But if you notice right away, there's this kind of bookend thing happening with the fig tree. So we see the fig tree mentioned, then all of a sudden there's like this little break, and there's a cleansing of the temple. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees are getting mad at Jesus. They're like blown away. The crowds are amazing. So there's a lot going on. Then all of a sudden we're back to the fig tree. So notice what Mark's doing here is he's taking the fig tree as an object lesson, and then he's going to the cleansing of the temple and then going back to the fig tree again. Okay. So you got to understand that there's a bigger thing happening um, than just Jesus having a botanical uh, preference that he doesn't like fig trees. Okay. So it's, this is not about kind of a personal vendetta against fig trees. There's much more happening. What is happening here? Well, uh, there's a rich Old Testament background for fig trees. And every single time the image of a fig tree is used, it represents Israel. It represents the nation and worshiping community of Israel. So in Hosea 9.10, for instance, says, I saw you like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season. Jeremiah 24 has a whole long parable and a vision that Jeremiah has of a good fig and a bad fig. And it's used to say that exile is coming to, for Israel because they have become bad figs. And last, there's also another passage in Jeremiah chapter 8 where it's a judgment specifically on the leaders of Israel. And it says this, I will bring an end to them. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree and even the leaf will wither. Okay? Now, I think that text right there would have been what is in the disciples' minds when they hear Jesus curse the fig tree. Because they have this rich backdrop of what it means. For us, we're like, why? This makes no sense. Like, we don't even know where to place this. It's like, why did he have, what did he have against figs? Figs are pretty delicious, actually. But you got to understand the rich backdrop here of what the fig tree represented. The fig tree represented Israel and specifically the leadership of the worshiping community of Israel. And so when Jesus says this, before he goes into it, uh, for, to the temple, he's telling the disciples, hey, this is about to happen. There's going to be something with the leaders that I'm going to confront. 
And that's what he does. And then sure enough, they come back out of the temple after Jesus cleanses the corruption of the temple. And he shows them, look, it's actually withered just like Jeremiah 8 had said. Okay? So with that backdrop, you got to understand as well that fig trees were some of the most accessible uh, fruit and most um, resilient tree in the desert. And so the blossoming figs, if it was healthy, 10 out of every 12 months of the year, there would be figs. Now, what was really interesting though, is that Jesus has to go and see if there are figs on it. Now that sounds strange. You're like, why would he go and see that, that if there were figs? And then why would he say it wasn't even the season for figs? And why would he go check if he knew it wasn't the season for figs? Well, here's why. Because Jesus goes and looks for the figs because from a distance, um, fig trees bloomed their green uh, leaves first and then figs would like embed themselves under the leaves. So often you would actually have to approach it, kind of go through the leaves and be like, oh wow, here we go. Here's some good figs. But what's going on with this season thing? If If it wasn't the season for figs, why would Jesus even check? Here's what's crazy. Mark uses a very specific word for season here in Greek. He doesn't use the word for botanical seasons of growth that you'd expect when talking about harvesting or fruitfulness. He uses the same word that he opens his gospel with in Mark 1 when he signals the time, the season being fulfilled because the kingdom of God has come near. Now, that's Mark's cheeky way to his audience to be like, hey, this isn't about whether that tree was healthy or not. This is about whether you are healthy or not. This is about the kingdom of God coming near and being an establishment of a new fruitful worshiping community. So Jesus is using the fig tree as an object lesson for the unfruitfulness of the Jewish community at the time. The unfruitful work of the temple who has ultimately rejected God's Messiah, thinking that they're doing all the work to try to welcome the Messiah. So you got to hear Jesus coming into the temple with that image in mind saying, right now, the worshiping community is all leaves and no fruit. Looks good, looks healthy, but there is no healthy fruit. There is no true life to this community. And that's what he's getting at when he uses the fig tree. And I think that that's exactly what the disciples would have had in mind, which is why Peter, who ends up just being like the spokesperson so often for what the rest of the disciples are thinking, but that's why Peter's like, hey, look, it actually withered like you said. So the picture, what's happening here, the mental imagery is that they're heading to Jerusalem. Jesus curses the fig tree. They go into the temple. They, he cleanses out the corruption of the temple specifically because of their prayerlessness And then the next morning, the fig tree had withered and died. What's the point? Jesus is teaching them that the temple itself had already completed its purpose in the broader scope of redemption. That the temple had ultimately withered and failed to produce righteousness. They've turned from desperate lives of prayer and fruitfulness to self-sufficient lives of activism, profit, and fruitlessness. And what's really crazy, later in Mark 13, and we'll get there in a while, but in Mark 13, Jesus uses the fig tree again, one more time, to stress that the temple and national Israel will be brought to an end before his generation passes. 
later on the series. We'll deal with that in detail, but that definitely poses some questions today for some of like Christian Zionism and thinking that national Israel and a real temple in Israel is the point of the covenant. But Jesus actually uses the fig tree to say national Israel and the temple itself is not a part of the redemptive plan moving forward when the kingdom of God comes near. That the temple has fulfilled its purpose. And now I'm building a new temple. His body and the body of Christ that belongs to him made up of both Jew and Gentile. So it's very, very um, radical what Jesus is doing here. And that's why you see the leaders are like, that's it. We got to get rid of this guy. That's it. We're going to kill him now because he can't come and mess with the temple. Can't come and mess with the way that we kind of get, get what we get. We can't, he's going to mess with our profit. He's going to mess with our bottom line. That's what Jesus is going to do right now. So we're going to get rid of him. Now you have to understand the temple a little bit. I'm not going to go way back, but the temple imagery starts in the garden where God actually makes creation his dwelling place and the tabernacle and the temple later all mimic all of the symbols in the temple point back to the garden, all of them. Okay. We don't have time to get into it. If you want to talk about like the geekiness of that, I'd love to. It's super exciting. Uh, I wrote several papers on the temple and it's, it's amazingly dry and exciting. Okay. But, um, it always points back to the garden. Now the temple though, it has become the heart of Jewish religious life. So all throughout the history, it was like that safe space for them to actually go and experience the presence of God in the midst of chaos and brokenness and sin. Now, Herod's temple, which is the one that was um, standing when Jesus was, was doing his ministry, was considered one of the most beautiful structures of the ancient world. It was 35 football fields in total area. Like, we're not talking about, like, a nice building. We're talking about a massive, crazy statement to the world watching that this area is big and it belongs to a big God, right? So it, it's huge. Now, where the action takes place in this text is in a place called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, the Court of the Gentiles was the biggest area inside the temple. It was like 25 acres in area. It was huge. And it was the only place where non-Jews were allowed. But it was also often used as a way through the temple because it was in the middle of a, um, a commercial road. So trading and stuff would happen. And so the, the court of the Gentiles was used often for people just to get through the road, come through the temple and go out the other side to continue their journey across, across uh, Palestine. So um, the, the action for the scene happens right there. So you got to think, busy craziness happening, um, especially during Passover. Now this is crazy. Like you got to think like New York... New York Stock Exchange type chaos happening because Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, said that during the week of Passover alone, upwards of 250,000 lambs were purchased in the court of the Gentiles. So the market that was there, that was normal. There was usually a market there. But you imagine like 250,000 lambs, like, meh, like running around and them trying to sell stuff to, to worship and have Passover. Like it would have been absolute chaos. And Jesus walks into that chaos, starts turning tables over, driving out the corruption of the temple in order to bring back to it the focus only to then have the temple destroyed years later because of the broader point that he's making. So it's crazy what's happening here. It's very, very chaotic. And you got to understand the context here. Often we're confused about like money changers. It's like, why are, why is there a currency exchange happening in the temple? Well, two things that was normal. That was normal and accepted. There was currency exchange that happened because there would be people who would come 
as a pilgrimage to come and worship during Passover. And what would happen is they would actually have to take their local, um, their local currency, their foreign currency, where they're from, and they would have to convert it into Tyrian silver so that they could actually now use it to purchase animals for sacrifice for Passover. And secondly, there was often doves being sold within the Gentile court as well because it was the most common animal for sacrifices at the time. And it was specifically most accessible for poorer worshipers. So it was the least expensive sacrifice that you could buy. And so it was obviously the, the most demand. There was the most supply for that. And so imagine a bunch of animals, currency exchange happening, and all of this happening. Here's Jesus' problem with it though. Here's, here's why we have an issue here and why Jesus is um, ultimately um, angry and indignant about what's happening. What had happened is the Sadducees kind of uh, broke off with their own faction and they had set up shop to compete with the normal exchange inside the temple. So usually this was just outside the temple, these exchanges, or in some of the other courts and outer courts of the temple. But what the Sadducees had done is they had tried to compete with the normal exchange and set crazy premiums and high prices for animals for sacrifice. And so what they're doing is they're making it very inaccessible for everybody to actually come and worship and they're profiting from it. And that's what's happening. So that's why Jesus is as indignant and angry as he is. That's why he actually comes in and drives them out. Because what he's doing is he's taking the private object lesson of the fig tree and he's blowing it up and making it a public lesson to expose the spectacle that has become worshiping life in the temple. So he kind of takes the fig tree writ large and applies it to the public worshiping community. So the point here though, that we can take from this as well, is that there can be muchness and busyness and lots of activism and lots of activity in the worshiping community, in the people of God, that all look like signs of faithfulness. They all look very fruitful, but ultimately are devoid of true faith and true fruit. And this poses a really good question for churches today, especially in the West. When we have made such a big thing of our bigness and our muchness and our manyness and, and the lights and great speakers and great musicians and act activism and look what we're doing and look what we're fighting against. And we could do all of those things and they be true fruit. That's true. However, we also can be doing all of those things and it actually lacks signs of faithfulness and fruitfulness. And that's Jesus's correction. That's his criticism of the worshiping community at the time. So he's calling out their appearance of fruitfulness, just like the fig tree, but it's lack of fruit. The appearance of righteousness, but a lack of fruit. But for us to apply this and understand this, this is not just about Israel. This had its own historical direct application in the context for sure. But this is also a strong warning to any of us who profess faith but fail to demonstrate the fruit of faith in our lives. Fail for us, fail to actually look at the fruit and see the fruit of our lives and allow it to point us deeper to say what truly is at the root of my heart. See, the fig tree gave the impression of fruitfulness. It looked fruitful until you got closer and got a closer look. All leaves, no fruit. Green, lush leaves, no real fruit and sustenance though. And I honestly think that often uh, when we see trees used, it's always a throwback and a hyperlink back to the garden. Because if you remember when Eve is actually tempted to go and take of the, the tree of knowing good and evil, 
that it actually looks really good. It looks fruitful. It looks like it's going to sustain and give her life and wisdom. And ultimately it leads to death. And that's exactly what's happening here. That we can have the appearance of fruitfulness, have the appearance of righteousness and being the faithful ones, but ultimately have no real fruit of the spirit in our life. So what does biblical fruitfulness look like? Well, there's lots of ways you could look at this and apply it. But just a couple examples across the New Testament. The book of James, this is the entire point of the book of James. Is that he is talking to the church saying, listen, in chapter 1 he says, be doers of the word, don't just be hearers. In chapter 2, verse 26, James says, faith without works is dead. Meaning that if works do not flow out of your faith, that your faith is dead. There's no fruitfulness. There's no life that comes from it. Dead faith, James says, is faith that doesn't actually change your life. That's what dead faith is. So he poses the question to all of us. What do you do with what you hear? Week to week, as you spend time in the word, as you spend time together as the church, hearing the word of God preached and proclaimed, do you practice and apply anything that you hear? Because we're at danger of being hearers of the word, but not doers. And that's not going to actually lead to the soil of our heart, being healthy and living a fruitful Christian life. Uh, John 15 is another example of this, where Jesus talks about abiding in him, remaining in him, because he is the vine and we are the branches. That there's this idea of abiding in Jesus, living with and following after Jesus is what produces fruitful life in the spirit, a fruitful life in the spirit. The proof that we've experienced the power of God is that we are abiding in Jesus and producing fruit out of our life. Jesus also in Matthew 7 says that you will know people by their fruit. Now, I love that because I think that's super important as we understand what fruitfulness looks like. Because we can believe a lot of things. We can say a lot of stuff. Uh, we can even do a lot of stuff. But to be known by our fruit is to actually look and say, what are the fruit of the Spirit? What are the, what's the evidence of the Spirit actually producing life through me and, and from within and out, out of me? What does that actually look like? Well, Galatians 5 tells us, very well-known passage, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against these things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, arrogant, provoking one another or envying one another. Now what's really interesting here is this is actually a list of the fruit of the Spirit, but it's contrasted with the fruit of the flesh. Right? So, and it says, now the works of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfishness, dissension, so division, anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and anything similar. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Now, I lo love what Paul does here because what he's not saying is if you're in the church, you um, automatically are going to express the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking to the church. He's saying if you look at your life, you look at your fruit, and you look at the fruit of your life, and it looks far more, you have way more on the list of the fruit of your flesh than you do in the fruit of the Spirit, that, then you are not walking in step with the Spirit. You're living according to the desires and passions of your flesh. Right? So right here, you got to look. The fruit of our life, what comes out of us, how we speak, how we think, what we desire, points to the root of our life. The fruit of our life points to the root of our life. And we have to examine what are we actually defining ourselves on? What are we actually valuing? What do we truly love and desire and want? Because that at our base, at the root of our identity is going to give just, just flow outwards to actually define who we are and what we're doing. So if you think about that list, more love, more joy, more contentment, peace. Are you more at peace? Are you becoming more patient? Are you becoming more kind? Faithfulness. Are you trusting of God more and more? More gentleness and more self-control. Those are the fruit of the Spirit. So I will just say, if your current use of your time, uh, social media, how you speak about others, how you spend your money, how you spend your energy, who you do life with, is not stoking the fruit of the Spirit in your life, it is probably feeding your flesh. And that's really important. Because we're actually called to self-examination here. This is what Jesus is warning us of. Are you examining yourself? Are you being rigorous and examining the root of your life. Because you can see it by the fruit. Because if not, if you're not seeing this come out of your life, it calls for us to reevaluate how much we're actually living in the flesh rather than in the spirit. That's the point here. How do you know a mango tree is a mango tree? Well, it grows mangoes. But the key is that mangoes on the tree don't make the tree healthy. Because you could go and glue mangoes onto a tree. It doesn't mean the tree is healthy. What do you look to? Well, you look at the roots. You look at the DNA of that tree that make it healthy to grow mangoes. And that's exactly what this text is getting at. It's exactly what Jesus is, is getting at here, especially with the temple. Because it is not reflecting the fruit of the Spirit. It is not authentically showing that it has actually, that that community knows and is living after and reflecting well the nature and character of God in the Spirit. So let me ask you. Is there anything distinctly Christian about your life other than what exists in your head? Is there anything distinctly Christian about the people you associate with or the tribe that you think you're a part of? What does the fruit of your life right now in this season point to? How you speak, how you think, how you feel in this season, uh, how you spend your time online, how you spend your money, how you spend your, your, your energy. Who are you when you're alone? Because that's when the fruit is going to show up. When you're left, no one else to impress, no one else to be cheeky with. No one else to assert your righteousness and how right you are and good you are. When you're left alone to your own devices is their fruit. Fruit of the Spirit. Not perfectly. Not all of the fruit of the Spirit. But are you growing? Is there slow, consistent growth of the fruit of the Spirit when you're alone? 
This is a call for self-examination. It confronts our lack of self-awareness. It confronts our tendency to downplay the severity of our own flaws and overplay the severity of others. It's a classic self-righteousness and self-justification that Jesus is critiquing here. So it's not just to Israel. It's not just about the temple. It's to all of those who would call the Lord, Lord. That we wouldn't actually live lives where we have no self-awareness or no self-examination. And we would just downplay our own severity of our sin and our flaw and, 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 and overplay everybody else's because it's everybody else's fault. That we would live lives of blame shifting, like our culture. Go easy on yourself and be harsh with others. All grace and forgiveness and, and second and third and fourth and fifth chances for you, but no grace for others. It's never your responsibility. It's someone else's fault. It's someone else's responsibility. It's that group that's the problem. It's not my group. It's not me. John Wesley famously said that we should be rigorous in judging ourselves and gracious in judging others. Today, honestly, especially over the last two years, we have seen the church show some pretty rotten fruit because we have been rigorous in judging others and completely unaware of judging ourselves. All grace for us. No grace for anybody we disagree with. And real quick, honestly, the amount of criticism and ridicule, one-upmanship and self-righteousness that has sprung up from the church, not outside of the church. They should, like the world should do that. That's all the world knows. But the amount of like ridicule and criticism and self-righteousness that has sprung up from inside the church over the past two years has revealed a concerning lack of fruit of the spirit. A concerning lack of self-awareness. A complete lack of humility. A complete lack of kindness and gentleness and self-control. And I'm not sure why we thought that a hypercritical attitude, labeling people, ridiculing them, name-calling, and self-righteous posturing of we're faithful and everyone else who doesn't agree with me on this is unfaithful. We don't know. I don't understand why that has become something to celebrate or champion in the community of God. But I will say, it is a bad look on the bride of Christ. It is an extremely bad bruise on the face of the church of Jesus Christ when we're supposed to be defined by the fruit of the Spirit, not by the flesh. And ironically, this text right here, when Jesus flips tables, ironically today in the church, there are tons of people using that passage to justify criticizing people as if they're Jesus in the story. As if they're the hero. You're not the hero of the story. I'm not the hero of the story. We are empty-handed, empty-pocketed beggars who have been rescued and saved by the grace of God because of His goodness. And when we have that posture, church, we will see the fruit of the Spirit blossom and multiply in ways that we could never imagine because of God's goodness, not because of our own righteousness. So what's the, what's the antidote here? What is Jesus actually having us kind of take away from this? Notice, it's really interesting. It can be missed because this text gets used to say lots of stuff, especially the flipping tables part. Um, notice that he bookends this entire thing about prayer. Did you catch that? That he actually uses this to not just criticize the corruption of the temple, but he actually then at the end, 
he actually says, well, now listen, when you pray, and it's kind of random at first, you're like, what? Like the fig tree throwing people out of the temple, the Gentile court. And then all of a sudden, when you pray, it's like, Jesus, I don't see the connection. But if you noticed what he said about the corruption of the temple was that he said the temple, the people of God is to, is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, not a den of robbers. You catch that? That's what Jesus is doing. He's saying what is lacking is prayer in the people of God. And it's become a den of robbers, opportunists, self-righteous, so, um, and, and critical people just coming and profiting off of other people and building themselves up at the expense of others. That's what's happening in the community at the time. And Jesus is saying, that's not what my people look like. That's not what the community that is changed by me and indwelt by my spirit looks like and sounds like. And that whole house of prayer, den of robber, ro- uh, robbers, he's quoting from Isaiah 56 which is a wild passage because what it is, is Isaiah is prophesying that when the Messiah comes, okay, so in the future, when the Messiah comes, all nations, meaning Gentiles, would be brought home to pray and worship as the Jews do. And what Jesus is doing in that moment is he's challenging the common assumption of the Jewish elite that when the Messiah comes, they'll drive out foreigners. They'll get rid of the non-Jews. But here Jesus is welcoming the foreigners. He's saying they belong here. They belong in the temple because I am the Messiah. And he's giving them direct access to God in prayer, which is radical. That's extreme, especially for the Jewish elite at the time. The so-called experts on the law, the watch, the self-proclaimed watchdogs on what's orthodox. And Jesus is showing up and being like, you're not the one. You're not a watchdog. I'm the Messiah. I decide who is in and faithful, not you. You don't get to decide a narrow, myopic view of what is faithful and everybody in that lane, which happens to agree with me, belongs, but everybody else is out. Jesus says, you don't get to do that because I say who belongs to me. And right now he is opening up the front door of the temple and he's saying, everybody is welcome. It's an open invitation to all people, not an opportunity to make profit and marginalize a certain group of people. And that's why I think Jesus bookends this entire conversation with prayer. Because prayer done correctly is only a practice of humility. That you and I cannot pray. We can pray, we can say stuff, but a true posture of prayer starts with the posture of humility. It is literally the antidote to self-righteousness. It is the antidote to marginalization and factionalism and division and dissension. I think prayer is how we access the growth of the fruit of the Spirit in our life and how we see the decay of the flesh in our life is by prayer. And I think that's exactly why Jesus does this. So it's not as random as we think. And you see how Jesus actually finishes this when he talks about forgiveness and he talks about humility And he talks about repentance and he talks about praying and asking and anything that we ask that is in line with the will of God, that God wants to give it to us because he's generous. I know sometimes that text is used to basically say, well, whatever I ask, God will do. Well, no, that just puts you on the throne, not God. Prayer is actually starting with humility and acknowledging him on the throne, coming before him, bowing a knee to our king. And saying, God, I'm going to ask this because you've told me I can, but only let your will be done in my life because I trust you. 
without a doubt, the center point of Jesus's life wasn't, wasn't activism, wasn't healing, wasn't even teaching and preaching. It was prayer. Prayer was the center point of his life. And I think that's exactly why the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. They don't even say, teach us how to preach. They don't say, teach us how to teach. They don't say, teach us how to understand uh, scripture. They don't say any of that. Teach us how to do a worship service. They say, teach us how to pray. And it's amazing. That's the center point of Jesus' life. Uh, Tim Keller summarizes this really well and how vital and central prayer was. Listen, he says this, Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He healed people with prayer. He denounced the corruption of the temple, which he said should be called the house of prayer and insisted that some demons, so demonization, could be cast out only through prayer. He prayed often and regularly with fervent cries and tears and sometimes all night without sleep. The Holy Spirit came upon him and anointed him while he was praying and he was transfigured with glory from heaven while he prayed. When he faced his greatest crisis, he did so with prayer. When uh, we hear him praying for his disciples and the church on the night before he died, and then petitioning God in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And finally, he died while praying. Now, if you can't see that the center point of Jesus' life was prayer, then we're not paying attention. But if we're honest with ourselves, and this is not this is not how we're going to end today now as we apply some things, prayer is not the center of our life. We struggle with prayer. We do. Which is why we're going to start a five-week series starting next Sunday, being together in community on prayer. Because for us, and, and if we're honest with ourselves, often prayer is just kind of like this thing. It's like, well, I know. Like, I know it's, yeah, hey, like, it's where I access the presence of God. It's like, okay. But, but it feels, it feels boring. Uh, it feels pointless sometimes. It's very unengaging most times. It's unstimulating a lot of times. Your mind starts to wander and you think, oh, I must be a really bad Christian because I just thought about what I'm going to eat for lunch while I'm praying, right? And not to mention prayer is hard when we have Netflix and Facebook and YouTube to compete with. And then when we do pray, I find that often it's like you hear people pray. When you do pray, you end up praying for everything. And by praying for everything, you kind of just pray for nothing. Where you just like pray for every circumstance. You're like, Lord, world peace. Yeah, just give us world peace. You're like, okay, that's a good prayer, right? I mean, that's a good prayer. But like, I think we could we could maybe do a little bit differently as we pray. Or we just pray for a bunch of circumstances. As if prayer is just a place where I get to like list off the requirements for God to like change stuff and do stuff, right? And I know I'm not the only one. This is the weirdness, the strangeness of a life of prayer. But you have to understand this is not a new problem. Jesus and his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which we'll see in a couple chapters, when he teaches them how to pray, he brings them along. When he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, pray so you don't fall into temptation. And what do they do? Do they pray all night? Do they have a faithful vigil of prayer all night? No, they go to sleep. They go to sleep. And then Peter wakes up. He's probably still half sleepy. Peter wakes up, he tries to behead a Roman soldier and then goes and publicly denies Christ after being pressured by a teenage girl, right? So it's not a good look. The point of that whole text is that when we fail to pray in private, we will fail in public. We always drift from God privately before we drift from him publicly. And you got to catch that. 
everybody else and like what's happening right now in the world and what the church is doing or not doing, that's not your primary problem. It's not. You can, you can, you could have everything going really well publicly and you'd be a nightmare privately. And that's exactly the point of this text. And the only way to correct that, the course correction for that is prayer. And I really do think that honestly, when it comes to spiritual habits and disciplines, yes, prayer is by far the most important one, like hands down. But I think that sometimes we've tended to see prayer and other habits, whether it's just silence and solitude or community or worship or fasting or whatever it is, uh, reading scripture, like any of the other habits, what we've ended up doing is we haven't seen them as daily bread. Okay. We haven't seen them as sustenance for our soul because when you think about daily bread, right? The idea that like my breakfast every day is pretty unremarkable, right? So like, I'm not every meal isn't this like mind blowing culinary work of like art and majesty, right? But every meal, the ones that are really just like my normal breakfast, my normal lunch, my normal dinner, whatever it is, those are daily bread for sustenance. I need them. Now, they might not be like mind-blowing, memorable things like, you know, that steak from that restaurant. Some of you guys, you can remember meals like that. You're like, man, that was an unforgettable meal. Like, oh, did you taste that? Amazing. But that's not everyday life. You with me on that? Like everyday life is normal, kind of unmemorable, but we need it for sustenance. And that, I think, if we change the way we looked at prayer like that and actually saw prayer as daily sustenance for the soil of our heart, so that the fruit of the spirit might come and flourish out of our heart rather than like mountaintop experiences of spiritual breakthroughs and sensationalism, I think we'd pray more. But if we take the expectation of prayer, like, oh man, I better hear an audible voice from God, maybe see some angels today. And if I don't, then I don't know about this prayer thing. Then we actually set ourselves up to fail at what it looks like to actually live in the presence of God through prayer. So what would it look like for us to approach prayer as daily bread? Looking at prayer, not just as what we communicate to God, but that we would look at prayer as doing life with God. That we would go and actually understand that God's presence and power in your life and mine is directly tied to prayer. Why? Because prayer is reminded, is where we're reminded for our need for God. That's where we're reminded of our humble place and our need. Prayer is where we're confronted with the fact that we're not sovereign, that we're not in control, that we're not all-knowing, that we're not self-sufficient. You imagine, like you imagine, look at the last two years. Imagine if the posture of the church was that we're not in control, we're not all-knowing, and we're not self-sufficient. Imagine how much fruit of the Spirit we would see coming out of the church at large. That If we actually approach the last couple years and the fact that we're needy, we're dependent, we're desperate, we're at the mercy of a good, amazing, loving, gracious God. How much that would change. That we can't pretend anymore. That we don't need to pretend. That we don't need to add filters or airbrush ourselves. We don't need to be clever with memes and, and criticize people online anymore. Imagine. Imagine what it would look like. It would be such a gift. Not only to us in the worshiping community, but to the world around us. And last, I would say, not only is it where we access God, but prayer, I think, is where you actually show what you believe about God. So you and I can like say, like, I believe this about God and this and this. It's like, yeah, you can say that. But prayer is where we actually function in our faith. 
what you believe about God comes out most in how you pray and what you pray. So for example, if God's just a personal advisor, it's like, well, you just list off your stuff, do this, fix this circumstance, do this, give me that, uh, upgrade me here, bless me here. He's just your personal advisor, right? Or if he's like a CEO, you're just his underling. He's always too busy and super important. So you're just like, well, I guess I, guess I better scurry around and just do my job. Or he's just an angry, grumpy judge waiting to make his enemies lick his feet. You end up praying afraid. Or you end up praying with this strange posture of needing to come and impress God, even though you're not impressive. Or if he's an impersonal force, like an energy, it's like, I'm going to manipulate God with my words. I'm going to say the same thing over and over again. And I'm going to manifest my destiny in the cosmos. Or maybe for you, he's, he's an abusive dad, just waiting for you to fail, to just throw the hammer down. Whatever it is for you, we need an accurate view of God so that we can pray in light of who God actually is. Because I think some of us, we struggle because we live as functional atheists because we don't pray. Or when we do pray, we don't pray like God is real or present or, or hears us. Or others of us, we just expose like functional heresies or false beliefs about God when we pray and we end up praying to a God who isn't real or doesn't save. It's really important. What is your posture in prayer? How do you approach God when you pray? By yourself, but also in the presence of others in community. Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray together to our Father. Every single time Jesus prays, except for when he's on the cross and he quotes Psalm 22, guess what he's doing? He prays to God as Father. Not ruler, not righteous judge, not king, not creator, not higher power, not mysterious force of the cosmos. Father. Familiarity. Closeness. Belonging. Acceptance. Being fully known and fully loved because of our Father. That's the good news. That's what's waiting for you and I in prayer, church. That's the invitation. And all it takes is for us to recognize our own frailty and humility and weakness and desperation and go to our good Father in prayer. So I'll leave you with this. J.C. Ryle in the 1800s wrote this. He could have written this today. Listen to what he says. Can we really believe that people are praying against sin when we see them plunging into it? Can we suppose that they pray against the world when they are entirely taken up with the world's pursuits? Can we think that they really ask God for grace to serve Him when they do not show the slightest interest in serving Him at all? No. It is plain as day that the great majority of people either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do ask, which is the same thing. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin or sin will choke prayer. I look at people's lives and I believe that very few people pray. Church, may this not be true of us. May we not be people who wonder where God is when our lives are full of everything but prayer. And this is my encouragement as we go into the next several weeks together, that we would actually practice these rhythms for the next five weeks, that we would actually learn. If we don't know how to pray yet, we would learn how to pray, that we would come together in, as, as a community, which, which we are, 
that that is not about an event, but it's about us. It's about the people that we would bear each other's burdens, that we would carry each other's hurts. Some of us are, are hurting right now. Some of us are afraid. Some of us are grieving. What does it look like to, in prayer, carry one another's burdens? Come alongside one another and, and bear the weight of those things together. That happens in prayer. And so we're going to practice that over the next five weeks as we look specifically at prayer. So let this be an encouragement to kind of like springboard us into that. Let me pray for us to this end and then we'll have some time to reflect and pray together now before we jump off. Father, you are good. Even when we don't understand and see the full picture of exactly what's happening or where you are and we're disrupted and you're still working because it's what you do. You give us life and you, you pour in and promise us fruit when we come with a, a humble posture of submission and desperation. I just pray for us. I pray for Reach Montreal. I pray for us, Lord, and as we're at different places spiritually, we're at different places in our life right now, we're at different places emotionally, as we're walking through uh, different things, Lord. We're at very different seasons, life stages, all sorts of things right now. I pray for unity. I pray that you would continue to bind us together in the things that matter most, and that we would not be divided or pulled apart by things that don't matter things that are ultimately secondary and temporary, Lord, that we would focus on primary things that are eternal and of eternal value. I pray for us over the next five five to six weeks as we get together, as we, we practice good community rhythms, as we come together and support one another as believers, that you would give us life, that you would, that we would see the growth of the fruit of the Spirit from our hearts and, and outwards by the next time together in this season to invite you even into this morning that uh, as we reflect now as we pray together that you just be in it that your presence would be made known and, and felt and that we'd be able to carry that out lord in our own lives privately but ultimately that we would be able to find a safe space publicly to be together in prayer we love you we submit to you we ask all these things in jesus name amen